Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to episode 79 of Conquering Columbus. And today on the show, we have Mr. Jordan Miller. And Jordan is the president and CEO of the Ohio Valley region of Fifth Third Bank. He's been in the banking business a long time. He's got a lot of great insight into the industry. Uh, he also has some great stories from his time serving our country in the Air Force. And I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode a lot. Hopefully you learn a lot. And uh, most of all, hope you enjoy it. Before we get to that interview, though, guys, I want to take a moment and ask you all for a quick favor. Go ahead, pick up that phone of yours you were listening to this on, and uh, check out your podcast app, whether it's iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, uh, whatever you like to listen on. Uh, there will be a subscribe button, and if you click that, it'll make sure that you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. And the last thing we want to do before we start the show is take the time to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. All right, Conkers, that's all we got. Let's get this show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. We are live from the 5th, 3rd building downtown here in Columbus, Ohio, and we are sitting here with Jordan Miller, the president and CEO of 5th, 3rd Bank. And he's the, he's the regional president and CEO of 5th, 3rd Bank of Central Ohio, and he also happens to be a Columbus native. And before joining 5th, 3rd, Jordan spent some time as the vice president for Huntington Bank, and he studied at the University of Maryland, where he got a degree in business administration. And he was also recently a speaker at the 2017 Emerging Leaders Summit held by the Ohio Diversity Council. And welcome to Conquering Columbus, Jordan. Thank you. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here today. And 
Uh, one of the first questions we always kind of like to start off with is, what's a typical day look like for you? Oh, well, I don't know if there's anything typical about any of my days, but uh, um, I would say uh, a great deal of the day, of most days, would be a lot of meetings. Uh, most of the meetings are around uh, customer strategies to uh, move customers through our what we would call our pipeline, and they're typically the focus of those uh, meetings and, and calls will be around developing uh, middle market business uh, and trying to bring those businesses in as well as uh, uh, how we use our wealth and asset management pieces to, to help us in that whole effort. Uh, so lots of meetings, pipeline meetings, um, uh, there's the corporate meetings, there's the staff meetings that we have with our executive team that are here. Uh, and then it's a, and then I try to visit a lot of customers. So I'm on a queue board. So nonprofit is very important to not only myself but to our company and making sure we're helping the community uh, do the things that we need to do in the community. But also, um, uh, you know, getting our team uh, to uh, help help us drive the strategy so that we can uh, be a, be successful and grow market share. So obviously you guys have a really large team here. On your kind of immediate team, who do you work with on a daily basis and um, what do those relationships look like for you? Yeah, so on my immediate team, uh, I, I would spend a great deal of my team with uh, just a few people. Uh, one would be the head of our uh, commercial group, uh, Julie Hughes. Julie runs our uh, commercial middle market group. She's responsible, her and her group are re really responsible for the middle market segment, which we identify as companies that have 20 to $500 million in revenue sales per annum. So Julie's a big part of that. Uh, and then Francie Henry, who I've recently promoted to our market president. Francie is, is uh, in charge of our wealth and asset management group. That group is really responsible for private banking relationships and wealth and asset management relationships that, that would be um, minimum million dollars in liquid liquid assets. Um, so those are the two people that are primarily there. I also strategize a lot with our CFO, Kevin Lickman. Kevin is, uh, helps me with the numbers, helps us analyze, hey, where we're making it, where we're not, where, where, where our metrics look like, what our dashboard looks like. And then obviously the other one is Chris Sonneman, who is our HR business partner, who uh, helps us with talent, uh, talent development making sure we're giving feedback, making sure we're doing all the things that we do to engage all of our employees. So uh, retail is a big part of our business here. Uh, it's run a little bit different. Uh, so the, what we call the consumer space with uh, mortgage and all of the retail branches, those are very, very important. But I would say that from a strategy perspective, uh, that strategy is more set out of the corporate office than we just execute it, whereas we're setting the strategy for the local execution of the Wealth and, asset business, wealth and asset management business, as well as the uh, execution and strategy around our middle market um, client growth. Yeah, and, you know, <clears throat> the next place we kind of like to go is maybe take a step back. We'll probably come back and touch on current, uh, everything going on here at Fifth Third a little later. But we want to learn a little more about you, talk a little bit about what life was like growing up for you and kind of leading into what made you decide to go to Maryland and maybe even talk a little bit about your early career. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in Central Ohio. Matter of fact, today, just earlier today, in the community that I grew up in, Milo Grogan, there's a uh, community that's East 2nd Avenue, east of Cleveland Avenue there. Uh, we're working with Homeport, which is a nonprofit organization, housing organization that's 
focus on revitalizing that neighborhood, which is exciting to me. So uh, if you know Milo Brogan, I-71 splits right into that community and divides it in half. I grew up there as a child. I had my early childhood experiences there. I went to Milo Grogan School there and uh, <clears throat> uh, was fortunate that they had the Boys and Girls Club on Cleveland Avenue there, which I went there a lot. Uh, and uh, from there, I went to Central High School. <laughs> uh, so my early childhood in, in Columbus is really full of a lot of fond memories of uh, people that I know and places I've been and things. But uh, I left. <coughs> um, Columbus, I, I actually started at Ohio State, uh, and I was kind of a commuter student. Didn't work out that well. I mean, I, I wasn't a bad student, but a lot of distractions when you're trying to um, live at home, uh, three brothers, four sisters, <laughs> and you're trying to socialize on campus and trying to do that. So I, I decided to go into the Air Force, and uh, while I was in the Air Force, I later went to University of Maryland, GI Bill, so that that really helped me out. So, uh, I mean, I had my own money. didn't have to lean on mom and dad so much where they still had the family that they were uh, taking care of. So, uh, um, met my wife uh, in the Air Force, traveled extensively in the Air Force. So, I'd say I really grew up in the Air Force, got a lot of my education there. And obviously at the University of Maryland, formalized all that. And then I moved back to Columbus. Uh, when I moved back to Columbus, I really started my banking career. I started actually at the Comptroller of the Currency, which is the Department of the U.S. Treasurer as a bank examiner. Entry-level job, uh, fast-track banking, learned everything banking at a 30,000-foot level. Uh, Columbus was a way different market in banking uh, when I moved here back in the early 80s, and it is today. A lot more banks, a lot more uh, national banks that were here. A lot of that's uh, changed due to consolidation. I got a great education, and right after one of the bank examinations at Huntington, I uh, took a job there. Uh, they had some issues and challenges in one of their areas. I just happened to be the guy that, that helped them find them and identify them and move there and help them solve some of those problems. Uh, great start. I loved Huntington Bank. It was a good company for me to start at. Knew a lot of people well. They went through some changes. I went through some changes as I sought career growth. My my primary thing when I, after being in banking and Kind of being on the, um, I would say on the expense side. I want to, I want to run a business, and so I really wanted to have the opportunity to get on the revenue side, to grow revenue, to grow business. And and Huntington was great, uh, but I wasn't going to get that chance there. So I left there and went to Fifth Third, and I got that opportunity, and uh, um, it paid off for me. I moved back here almost eight years ago to be in this role, and it's kind of it's been neat coming back home, coming being, being full circle. Uh, and then actually to be back over in my old neighborhood today. So that's that's been tremendous for me. Absolutely. And I'm curious about, so what were you doing in the Air Force? I was an avionics uh, communication specialist. So in, in that role, I worked on, um, I, I repaired avionics equipment, uh, mostly communication radio systems, all different types of, uh, you know, they talk about the black box. That mm -hmm. was mine. So the black box, uh, which basically, you know, uh, it recorded all of the flight data. Uh, so that when there was a crash of uh, a plane or an accident happens, um, the, the, that had all the data around the heading direction, the speed, and anything that might have gone wrong, conversations that would have been happening in the cockpit were all being recorded in that black box. So that was one of the systems I maintained along with uh, a lot of the radio and navigation systems. Do you have any <clears throat> unique experiences around that in terms of accidents that happened while you were serving and uh, 
I had tremendous opportunities while I was in the Air Force. I was uh, what I called myself. I describe. I was. I was a self-described fixer. I like to solve problems, so it gave me the opportunity to fix and solve problems. And so, and you had to be ready. So the I want to think about ready. I, I remember numerous times as a plane getting ready to take off, and they have a some kind of system, uh, depending on where if they got to go over the water, which means go over the ocean. They got to have certain systems that have to work, and they have backup systems, and they. If they have to have that backup system. If they're just going across land, they don't need the same capabilities as if they're going across the ocean. Uh, and and uh, I remember numerous times being called out, last second, last minute, planes trying to get off. They indicator malfunction comes on with one of the uh, communication systems that they need to take off or land or uh, have the proper communications with. And I was the guy always ready, ready to go fix it. I fixed a lot of planes like that, and I was I, was, I, I prided myself on being really good at that. But the one unique experience I think I had was uh, I was part of the, um, <coughs> well, I think it was called the 21st Air Force. It's kind of, I was on a temporary assignment in Germany. And uh, while I was in Germany, a plane uh, had a problem with the black box in Iraq. Iran, I'm sorry. This was before the Shah had they kicked them out, before we lost relationships there. Uh, 21st Air Force out of Chicago called me up and said, hey, you're the only specialist that can go down there and fix it. Would you go down there and fix it? So hop on a plane, go down uh, with the flight crew, get there. It was an easy problem to fix. They just didn't have the specialty there to fix it. Fix it. Took me an hour. Sat on the runway uh, for a lot of time, and the plane was coming back to Germany. We got diverted to Spain. So I get to go to Spain. I get to Spain and I realize that I don't have a way to get back to Germany because I'm not on official orders. So you're running around, you're not on orders, and everybody, the first thing they'd say, well, where are your orders? You know, where's your papers? What are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? How'd you get here? And so there's really no explanation for that. So I just took advantage of that and just stayed in Spain for a couple of days. And <laughs> I ended up going back to Germany <coughs> with, this, with the uh, um, football team that was, you know, Air Force over in those days with the Army and all the other armed services over there. They had football teams and they played against each other. So the Spain Air Base, I forget the name of the Air Base now, that was in Madrid, Tor Home Air Base, was going to um, uh, play the Ramstein Air Base team in Germany and they were going and so I just jumped on a plane with them and went back. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> That's a pretty creative way to get back home. So, <laughs> yeah. did you have to like bribe anybody, or how'd you get? I mean, you just hop on a bus and it's no, good. Or? No, no, no. It was actually a flight. Uh, was, I mean, so uh, I had a lot of experiences like that. I got numerous experiences early in my career when I'm talking about my early, late teens, early twenties, uh, when now that was going on. I I learned a lot of leadership skills, and the reason I did, the, I think the number one thing was nobody else wants. Nobody wants to lead. Nobody wants to step up. Nobody wants to take the chance. Nobody wants to say. I can fix that problem. No one wants to go in the cockpit and, and talk to the pilot and co-pilot, the navigator, and say, "Here's here's your problem. Here's how I can fix it. And let me let me let me show you what you're doing, and ask them the right questions to get to the diagnosis." Which is, um, and then and then I and then I, I would tell you the other thing about being a leader in those days to me was. Guys just want to take shortcuts. I mean, I want to learn. I want to grow. I mean, I knew that this wasn't going to be my entire career. And I knew I was missing out on my college days right then. And I was kind of pissed because a lot of my buddies were in college. And, and I, I, uh, I'm the one who decided to step away because of, I, you know, I did, 
really didn't have the means to be in college and I didn't want to run up a bunch of student debt. Uh, and so uh, I wanted to learn, I wanted to grow, and this was a great opportunity for me to learn and grow. So right away, I mean, every base I was on, every assignment I had, I was, I was a guy. I mean, I, I ran shifts, I ran people that were 28, 30 years old, and I'm like a 19 and a half year old kid telling people what to do because I wanted to be the leader. Do you think that you had a stronger vision on your future and what you wanted your life to become more than your peers at that point in your life? I, I don't think I was, um, there were two things. One, I, I always tell people that I am a late bloomer. So uh, when I first graduated from high school, I had no clue what I wanted to do. I mean, I knew I was smart enough. I topped in my high school, didn't really mean anything coming out of a public school. Uh, but I didn't really have a goal for myself, uh, not a solid goal. I, I knew I, wanted to, I thought I wanted to go to college, and I just thought I wanted to go to Ohio State. And it was fun. I got good grades in math. I mean, I, that was the only thing I liked. <laughs> so I, I got good grades in math and all that stuff. But all the other stuff I really didn't want to do. And I was, I, uh, I, I guess I didn't know how to study. I never, because I never had to study. You know, going to a public school like Central High School, I mean, um, it, I just never had to pick up a book. I, I could just kind of go to a study hall, get all my homework done. And, uh, I, and I didn't really know. Uh, how to strategically set a time, set aside time to study in Ohio State, I realized, well, man, i got to put a lot more hours in. Well, I'm commuting back and forth. I pledged in a fraternity. I did all that stuff, and I was, I, um, I, but I didn't really at the time know what I wanted to do, and that's really kind of what caused me to kind of say, well, you know what, why am I wasting my time doing something I'm not sure of the outcome? Let me go in the Air Force, uh, which happened on a, in a way, that kind of happened on a whim. It, was, it wasn't something I was strategically planning to do, but it, it just kind of one of those days that I was in a bad mood. I stopped in the recruiter office, and bam, I got recruited. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't like it was planned. Uh, but in the Air Force is when I really clarified my goal. It was about a year in, I really clarified my goal that I need to finish my college. I need to stop playing around, get, get back. And, um, and so I was, I was fortunate that I had the money from the GI Bill to be able to do that. So what age did you go into the Air Force exactly? I was probably uh, close to 19 years old. And you got out at what age? I was uh, about 26. Okay. And then from there you talked about your transition from Huntington to Fifth Third and you wanted to switch to the revenue side of things. Um, for some of our audience listening who isn't familiar with the banking industry as much, can you talk a little bit about what those different roles entail and kind of what you meant when you wanted to switch to the revenue side? Yeah. So, okay, when I was at Huntington, I, I, I went there initially to um, – I'd left the Comptroller of the Currency. So the Comptroller of the Currency is a regulatory agency that examines the national banking system. It focuses on uh, credit quality and that, what they would call asset quality, which is really you know how well your loan portfolio is functioning and how, how well um, – your, uh, you know, because that's your balance sheet. Your balance sheet are, your loans are your assets. And if you have uh, poor asset selection or poor loan selection uh, parameters, it's going to get you. And I'm talking mainly about commercial. The other piece of it is earnings, the, earn the quality of your earnings. So uh, banks make money in two ways. They make money on the spreads between what they pay on deposits and what they receive on their commercial lending and their consumer lending balances. That spread and then the fees that they might charge as a result of different type of relationships that they have. <clears throat> the, the component that I was focused more around was a little different and a little unique. Uh, 
uh, and it was really more around the asset and liability management. So uh, someone's uh, treasurer's got to kind of sit between the entire balance sheet and look to see, well, what kind of liquidity do I need? You know, how should my balances be managed? What, what is the risk in my balance sheet? If I have a very, what we call an asset sensitive balance sheet at the time, that means that my loans have the chance to reprice much quicker than my deposits. So what does that mean? So it means in a, in a declining rate in uh, a declining rate environment, I gotta reprice my loans lower to keep them. Meanwhile, my deposits don't reprice as fast, so I've got to, I'm, 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 I'm getting compressed. Or, or conversely, um, if I have a, a balance sheet that's very liability sensitive, meaning that my, my deposits reprice quicker than my loans, I've got long-term fixed rate loans basically on my books, and I've got short-term deposit rates that could spike up, I mean, I can lose my spread, and you can lose your shirt. And what was happening in the early 80s and the late 70s uh, was uh, banks, the whole banking industry was being deregulated. And so that was causing banks uh, to have to pay up more for their deposits. And um, many banks had long-term fixed-rate loans. So a lot of banks, if you wanted a mortgage back in those days, had a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage on your books. So just think, if you've got a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage on your books and it's paying 7%, and all of a sudden your deposit rates go up to 10%, and you got to pay 10% for your deposits, that, that's math. That's upside, you're upside down. So now right. you're paying a lot more for your funding source than you're receiving. So they, there are some problems in that industry. That's the area that I focused on a lot when I was a bank examiner. That's the area that I focused on when I first went to Huntington. That grew into um, uh, setting uh, parameters around how they should have their uh, committee set up, what their, what their uh, policy should be around uh, deposits, investments, and all, and all those kind of things. And I became the guy that monitored all that. Uh, that morphed into um, a CFO position as the CFO of their treasury unit and of their broker-dealer. Which was a, which was a spinoff of a, of a brokerage business that they were trying to create. So I, I ended up doing a lot of the back office operational functions, compliance functions, uh, finance functions for all of these different businesses, and I loved it. It's fun. I mean, I was a go-to guy for all of these businesses and uh, people. I was in, definitely involved in a lot of decision making. But what I really wanted was the ability to go out and bring in customers. So when I moved to Fifth Third Bank and moved to Cincinnati, Fifth Third Bank had bought an investment company, and I got a chance to run that investment company. So I went to Fifth, uh, Cincinnati, and I was the president of Fifth Third Securities, which is their broker-dealer and, and focuses on bringing customers into the bank. So I had Salesforce, big Salesforce managers all over our footprint. Our job was to find customers that we could bring into the bank. That morphed into other higher-level responsibilities of of really running the profit center, which is today um, running running a, a region for 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 our bank, and that uh, that is morphed into just making a um, a, trem a tremendous focus is external instead of internal. I don't, I don't that answer your questions. It did it took me into some deep waters where I was just <laughs> trying to hang on because it was very interesting. One thing that I'm curious about out of that is you talked about you know becoming and taking these CFO roles inside of a bank is probably the most heavy finance. CFO role that you can take with a degree in business administration, how were you able to take such a highly specialized job that most people with a degree in finance would probably even have trouble getting and become that uh, well-educated in that field? Uh, I think the, um, 
I think I think the, the answer to that is you have you hire good people so man, my Air Force experience taught me hey the only way you can really be successful is you got to have good people around you uh, the difference in the Air Force I couldn't fire anybody <laughs> <laughs> I was stuck with, with who you got but you always knew you always leaned on the best people and so I always had good financial people I didn't have to be the financial genius to financial numbers even though I got pretty deep into it for a period of time uh, the parameters that we set around policy um, compliance limits investment policies you didn't need to be a CFO to do a lot of that stuff um, there were there were some parts of our business that were pretty compl complicated and I did need to hire uh, specialized people for those businesses so what does your hiring process look like what are you looking for when you're looking for people that you want to bring onto your team? Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> I think what we are primarily looking for, and I'll, I'll focus on um, our wealth and asset management group as well as our commercial middle market group. Uh, so we're looking for really highly trained people. I mean, we, we do hire people out of college into our training programs in Cincinnati. So we've got, we bought people out of Ohio State send them to Cincinnati to, to go through two-year China training programs and then bring them back here. Uh, so we've done that. But for the most part, I'm looking for people that can understand the business of a middle market company. So that's on the commercial side. Somebody that can understand, I mean, there's a lot of different middle market companies. They specialize in all different kind of things. And to be a successful um, uh, middle market lender and middle market relationship manager, to be able to understand the business you have to be able to look at the financials and understand the financials you have to be able to understand how to what kind of questions should they have what kind of business cycle are they in uh, so if, if it's a, <clears throat> uh, if it's a manufacturing company understanding their process understanding their cash flow understand who they buy their materials from how all that works uh, so you really have to be able to understand the business owner and then you have to be able to do also develop relationships so it's one thing to kind of get all the numbers and spread the numbers all out and look at the credit and how you want to finance something. It's quite another thing to be able to develop the really have the relationship management skills uh, to talk to the owners and, and talk to them about things like transition, you know, what's their plan for the business? Do they have a son or a daughter that's going to come in? Are they planning to sell? Are they, um, uh, do they, how are they going to monetize that asset? Because if I'm a business owner, my thing that keeps me up every day is, is this is my this is this is my uh, all my wealth is tied up in my business. Uh, I can take a salary out of it, but if I want to leave it, how do I exit? You know, if I don't have son or daughter that wants to take it over, do I want to sell it? Uh, we can help them do that. Uh, or do I want to take a dividend out of the business? How do I get my cash out of this business? And so that's a big question for a lot of business owners, especially in the time that they're turning into baby boomers. On the wealth and asset management side, exactly the same thing. We're looking for people that can go out and develop relationships with people that have a million dollars or more and, and um, help them uh, manage uh, their assets. So some of their assets might be from their business. Some of their assets might be more liquid. Uh, but they're looking to retire, uh, and they're looking to do many other things. So a lot of different strategies we employ that can get very sophisticated. Uh, maybe this is a hard question to answer, but at what point do you see most people being in a safe position in today's economy, um, wealth-wise, where they can retire and step back and, and live securely for the rest of their life, whether it's 20, 30 years? I think, um, I think I mean, that's all, always an individual uh, question because uh, everybody needs something different. So people, um, uh, some people will never have enough money to retire. Um, 
to, and to live the kind of lifestyle they want. So it's all about what kind of lifestyle do you want to live and when do you want to retire, where do you want to retire, uh, and what does that mean? Uh, the day of the pension plan is long gone, so a lot of um, people used to come up, they had a pension plan, pension plan, paid them X amount of dollars, They weren't their life expectancy wasn't that long, so they probably made it. Uh, more and more people now are relying on their own savings as well as their 401k, uh, and um, you know, and, and everybody's got a different income earning opportunity. I think what happens with most people that a lot of people that we see, especially in the in the middle segments or in the uh, emerging wealth segment, uh, would be people don't earn enough money to save, or their lifestyle is too big that they never put anything away. So they don't put things along the way. If you don't save along the way, then it's pretty hard to get to 50 or 60 years old and say, "Oh, I'm going to retire," and then you don't have anything. Um, but it's something that you should start thinking about early in your career, in my opinion. Um, you know, uh, what will retirement look like? Am I making the right kind of money? Am I making the right kind of moves? Am I, you know, if I'm making uh, $1,000, am I able to put away $100 of that and not touch it? So living within your means is really, really critical to doing that. I'm gunning for 100 years old and two Ferraris, so we can talk more <laughs> after the show, whatever I got to do. Um, it's not easy. Trust me. It's not easy. I, I talked to somebody that was previously a business owner, and they ended up going back and, and working in corporate America and working underneath somebody else, and it kind of surprised me because my whole path up to this point has been to find a way that I could own my own business and kind of you know do my own thing. And they said they weren't at a position where they were able to Put away wealth for themselves in a responsible manner where they thought they were going to be secure when they got done and i guess i just never had heard that dynamic before so it's interesting to hear you touch on it now too yeah. um, but to carry it from there i'm also interested to hear a little bit about um, what did your siblings end up doing what path did they take just on a more personal note i think it's always interesting to hear people who reach successful levels kind of how their family members turned out as well yeah so i'm um, very fortunate most of my family members are doing well my Older sister was a, <clears throat> was a teacher, uh, so that's you know, she went to college here locally, stayed here, longtime teacher in this marketplace. I have another sister that um, her and her husband owned a business. They were two business owners uh, and uh, ran a very very successful uh, kind of a retailing kind of a business. It uh, has a specialty kind of a product uh, sales. They had three different retail locations here at one time. Some of that's changed a little bit as the retail sector, as their business models changed a little bit. Uh, and then brothers were um, pretty much successful. One is a Bell Bondsman insurance guy down here. He gets a lot of people out of jail, pays well. And the other is a, uh, works in a um, <coughs> IT shop for a um, um, retirement system, for one of the retirement systems here, and runs a lot of their back office systems from um, computers and technology and that kind of stuff but uh, everybody did pretty well uh, I don't have any uh, losers in the family pretty much uh, most of them got married and um, Thanksgiving we celebrated with all of our families and a lot of kids and a lot of grandkids there <laughs> so it was fun and it was good to see that um, that everybody's doing reasonably well health wise yeah that's, that's great good. any children yourself yep two, a boy and a girl yeah a few grandkids in there too two, <laughs> two boys and two girls grandkids my daughter's in uh, Vermont, and my son is here in, uh, on the east side of Columbus, and uh, he's got all the grandkids. That's that's uh, it's always got to be good, you know. It's always nice to see family. Um, I, I'm from California, mm-hmm. so I had the chance to go back and see my parents, my brothers uh, over Thanksgiving. I don't have to get to go back, but it's always good to have family nearby. Um, but 
I was curious. I uh, wanted to jump back into the role here at Fifth Third Bank. I was curious about, you know, what were some of the biggest challenges you've had over the past eight years with Fifth Third and, uh, you know, maybe one or two that high, stick out to you and how'd you overcome those challenges? Yeah. Well, um, I just happened to come back in a really, really great time right at the beginning of the Great Recession. So I moved back here and uh, right around 2008 when um, <laughs> the real estate market was falling out uh, and the um, – <clears throat> Basically, what was happening, I mean, it was happening on multiple levels. Um, most people get it from a housing level. So there were a lot of, we financed, we had financed a lot of projects in the marketplace. And the way you finance commercial real estate for housing developments, for malls, office, industrial, any of those things is uh, uh, we do the, we're the we're construction lender. So uh, the first thing that has to happen is land has to be developed. Well, land's not really worth a lot until it's developed but even after it's developed now there's no revenue way to bring the revenue back out until you get some build a site and it gets a rent so either you build houses and you get you know per lot that you've developed now you can start getting money back out well during the time uh sales were drying up pretty quickly so a lot of developments that we had money out to that were developed didn't have a way to earn back the revenue. So the owners or the, the developers didn't have a way to pay you back. So that was a problem. So um, we had a lot of conversations with a lot of developers. We had a lot that had extended their own equity and were expecting us to take them out, uh, help them with, uh, with the equity portion and with the financing of a project. So we had projects that we are kind of halfway committed to but not fully committed to that we – some we decided not to fund, some we decided to go ahead with. Uh, but that was a real challenge. Uh, that, that time was, uh, was very difficult. I mean, I had a lot of customers that were deep. And this is not true of all re uh, commercial real estate developers, but most of them don't have cash, and they look for you for cash. Uh, they might have investment partners. Um, but to get their investment back out of that dirt, they got to build a structure that somebody will buy from them or rent from them. And if they don't do that, then it won't cash flow. It's all negative cash flow up until that point. Uh, so a lot of those conversations, as you can imagine, were very, very, very difficult. I had a lot of those conversations, and I had them face-to-face -face as often as I could. A lot of them I got yelled at and I got screamed at. <laughs> <laughs> I got called a lot of names. and uh, But at the same time, you know, what you going to do? Right. Are you going to continue to build something that nobody's going to rent? Money's sunk. Can't get it out. If we finish building it, nobody's going to buy it. I mean, there's no – I can't keep lending money on something that's not going to cash flow, that's not going to work, that I can't get a return back. So we made a lot of those decisions one on, one off. And uh, most of the – we had some strong developers here in, in the community that we had to pick and choose who's going to win, who's going to lose. And the ones that we picked were the ones that were deep into it, that had the wherewithal to – stomach a downturn they were the right the ones that you that you stay with there were a lot of people that entered into the commercial uh, real estate business just because it was booming it was hot they had a I, I say they basically had a hammer and a, a hammer and a nail and they did all of a sudden became a real estate developer and uh, <laughs> and um, probably we lent to them <laughs> yeah and when their projects felt we felt so that's our balance sheet when they don't make money we we lose money and when you charge off a loan that's that's huge those are big problems. Uh, the other thing that was happening at the same time in order to survive during that time was picking the right talent and getting rid of the talent that didn't make sense. 
Um, so we were uh, really, really, really worked really hard with our management team to restructure our team. I didn't need a lot of commercial real estate development lo uh, loan officers anymore. I had 12 real estate loan officers. Well, I'm not making real estate loans. I don't need all 12 of those guys, right? Which ones can I convert into uh, other areas that we can use? Which ones can I use to help me work out? You still need them to be in involved in these projects because there's a lot to be worked out. You just can't walk away from all those deals. You've got to go out. You've got to secure it. You've got to find the collateral. And, and these are uh, multi-million dollar deals. So most of these deals I'm talking about, we got $30 million out to a client. I'm not talking about we got $500,000 or $200,000 out. We got $20, $30 million out to a, a project. And we got to figure out, okay, how do we, uh, what do we do? And so a lot of them I was able to retool and keep around. But th those were really challenging times. Um, you know, kind of fast forward, the business changed. We got through the recession, got through the cycle, and then uh, got back on offense uh, with trying to do more business development. Um, and the businesses, the businesses have completely changed. I mean, so um, our focus has changed quite a bit. How we go to market, um, um, how we prospect, it's all changed. I mean, it's just completely different. I, there is not a single business owner that's got a $40, $50 million business that's going to give you time to go in and ask them a bunch of questions. And you just don't have time. So you have to have some value. You have to really be able to um, uh, go in with some understanding of the company, understanding of that industry, and some deep expertise about what that company looks like, how they might compare with the other industry. And then you have to be able to give a quick elevator speech to get in and uh, get to the right people, talk to them. And uh, even then, that just that's the beginning of a relationship that you could potentially win. And, it's, and it takes time from there. But uh, uh, long gone are those days when I could just call you up and say, hey, Mike, can I come over and see you? <laughs> um, find out what you do and see if I can help you. Yeah, come on over, Jordan. Let's go to lunch. You know, you take them to lunch and you get talking about a bunch of stuff. And if they like you, then let you come back. <laughs> There's no way that you can have those conversations today. Today, it's um, one, getting past the gatekeeper, and then two, making sure you've got something. So we've done a lot of work around our playbook and how we uh, go see clients, the kind of information we take clients, the kind of diagnostics that we do about their business long before we even meet them. So when we go in, we know how their business works. We know a lot of things, how they function. And then, then the questions are really how do they uniquely stand out in the industry. So, Got to make a podcast and trick them. Now <laughs> <laughs> you get in the door. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it works for some companies. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess to uh, fall from there, what does the future look like for you and the company, and what are some of the big goals and milestones that you guys have um, looking for the next five to ten years? Yeah. Uh, this company is a very bright future. Uh, we've got a great team here. Uh, we've, uh, you know, we're uh, we are uh, preparing for succession at all different levels. I've got a number of uh, relationship managers that are in that stage where they retire over the next several years, and so I'm bringing in young talent to kind of get ready to replace them. Um, obviously, as I mentioned before, the business is changing. Um, it requires. Uh, a lot of a lot better questioning to understand um, to find pain points in a company to do diagnosis to find out is this company right for my balance sheet is this the right kind of business do I have the right kind of understanding um, and 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 the marketplace is full of major competitors so it's 
Columbus is a hotbed. So besides the banks that you see downtown here with Chase and Huntington and Key and U.S. Bank and PNC, I mean, they're right down the street. We got I got <coughs> uh, Bank of American bankers right here, just like our bankers. I've got Wells Fargo bankers that are right here. You don't see the sign on their building, but they're in this market. And the guys from a bank down south called Regions Bank, they're in this market. They call me all the time about <coughs> uh, trying to participate in deals. So um, it's a lot of competition out there. And, and uh, most of the customers, uh, many of the customers that have been burnt by banks when they went through a crisis, those banks that pulled their credit lines, tightened their credit lines, raised their prices, did all kind of crazy things. Um, and, and I have to admit, we had to do some of that. <coughs> Uh, it's hard to reestablish those relationships. They knew they they want the the bank that's going to stick with them through thick and thin. And you like to say that you're going to do that, but sometimes it's it's nearly impossible when a business is tanking and it's not working and it's not it's not going well. Uh, and you you got a balance sheet that you've got to protect, and that's uh, that's the reality. So I, I think the way. Um, we, I have always been taught to do it, and the way I've always taught our team to do it is when we're having challenges, communicate, communicate, communicate. Let's find out what they're doing to reshore their business up, find out what their plan is. Um, loans are meant to be repaid, and that's ultimately what our goal is uh, when we make a loan. But certainly we want to stick with our customers. We want to help them through the, through the toughest times. The banks that can figure out how to do that in the future are going to be the ones that are going to be here to survive. Um, uh, but doing that in a very tight regulatory environment that we're in, it, may, it makes it a lot harder. So if I've got a loan that's not performing, even though I might want to stay with that customer, it costs me more. i got to set aside more capital for that loan. When I set aside capital, like that's a big expense on my part. So I've got to be careful how many loans I can do that for. So it comes down to, uh, number one, making sure you're doing business with the right people and I can't emphasize that enough the business owners that you're doing um, can they manage their business through any economic cycle are they aware of the disruption that's happening in their business because of you know all the new technology the guy in the garage that's getting ready to put all of us out of business I mean you know is there, I mean and that's you really have to think like that and you really have to question um, that and you have to have business owners that think like that and then you, you find the right ones you pick your partners and uh, if you pick them right then you got a great future you can pick one or two that are bad and they can take you down so you really have to be you really have to use all the team and all your resources to make sure you get the right people on your you know on your balance sheet the banking industry is really interesting to me because i feel like you build a brand in different avenues so like your daily individual bankers who come in and just you know they keep your money with you they might have you know a line of credit or a savings account and then you have your commercial lenders or your business and you know you're the majority I'm assuming are probably gonna come from the individuals this the everyday people who their experience with you is kind of what your reputation is within the field mm -hmm. and then that kind of escalates over into your commercial side of things so there's just like a lot of dynamics that go into it that I don't see in as many under, other industries which I think would probably make it pretty difficult it is. There, there are multiple different businesses that we operate within the bank, and it takes a lot of different kind of people. So uh, the folks that we have out in the banking centers um, that can help our consumer customers with multi multiple challenges. So just think of the average Joe that works at ABC Company that just needs a checking account to kind of have his payroll go into and just writes checks and 
uh, you know, he needs a car, he comes to you, or he's thinking about buying a house, he might come to you. <clears throat> uh, growing that business is a whole lot different, and it's um, obviously it's a lot more households over there. It's a lot more, there's a lot of deposit opportunities. Uh, there are a lot of uh, products and services that we can offer uh, customers, and uh, but but at the same time, uh, any one of those um, financial centers might have 3,000 customers, and so to try to service all of those customers, so any get any given day, uh, you know, I hate to say it like that. If you're if you're not on the A list customer, if you're not one of the top 200 customers in that, then somebody may not know you. You could easily you can easily be offended. Um, uh, and they don't know their, they really don't have a relationship with that bank, um, like I say. And then on the commercial side, much less clients, I probably have 250 commercial relationships. I know every single one of them. Our team knows every single one of them. We know they're, we, we've got the story. We talk about them all the time. We look at their financials. We, we understand where they're going. We kind of understand their business. The ones we don't, we try to get to know a little bit better. There's some that, that, uh, <clears throat> we don't have as deep a relationship with. Uh, some I would say um, they use us like a vendor and hey, we don't need financial help, we got this. We All we need from you is line of credit and a place to keep our deposits. I mean, that's some of them and you don't make any money off of those relationships typically. And then there's other ones that we call partner relationships that we certainly have a deeper understanding of and uh, we help them make decisions. We're there when they want when the consultant asked them if they thought about this, if they're thinking of an acquisition, if they're thinking about buying another company or selling the division or going into a different product line, they've got a financial partner that they can ask them all the right questions uh, to make sure that they fully vetted uh, what they're trying to do. So uh, it definitely spans a um, spectrum of how deep you are in that relationship and what we call that partner box is the box that we like to be in. We're not, we can't be in that box with every customer though. It's a time consuming, it's a lot of work. Um, and so probably anywhere on the commercial side of our business, if we've got 20, 25% of our people that are in that partner box, those are the customers that are so deeply ingrained with us that we know them, that we talk to them all the time. And then the other 80%, there's some that we'd love to be in that partner box, but others that we say, hey, this is a vendor relationship. All they have from us is a lease line. It's very profitable, it works, and that's all they want from us. So. Do you guys, I noticed that a lot of other different, whether it's just banking industries in general, are starting to create like incubators inside for um, future projects and to innovate with technology. Have you guys started to focus on that? We do. We have a, so if you look at FIP 5.3, FIP 3rd, the fraction comes out to 167%. So we've got a group in Cincinnati, our innovation center, that we started to call 167%. In that innovation center is really a, great deal of focus on areas where you're going to see a lot of disruption. And we're seeing a lot of disruption in the payment business, especially of PayPal's and um, the Venmo's and the um, Zell's of the world and all these other fintech companies that are out there. So we've done a lot of research. We've got a lot of people uh, that, that do this research and strategy for us. And we work with a lot of different companies. But the focus in that group Primarily, it's not just, I don't just want to say millennials, it's a big focus. It's around millennials and what millennials are going to do and what they're thinking and how they want to engage with the bank and how they want to engage with the financial center. So they've got all the stats and all the numbers. They do all the research and we get this stuff. And we do these think tanks and uh, we just sit around and talk about it. And we have millennials that come in and talk to us. One of, the, one of the, and we've done a number of things in this space to try to attract millennials because how they pick 
their banking partners and how they bank is quite a different in most cases than how their mom and dad did it. So I've got a lot of financial centers that mom and dad still come in at Millennium, and there's no way I'm going into that thing. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to do all my banking right here, and uh, and and. And, and not to be stereotypic, but there are patterns, and you try to understand those patterns. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that we know that quite different than when I went to school, I talked about that. I, when I got out of college, I had zero debt. We're seeing uh, kids coming out with sixty, dollars $80,000 worth of student debt. They don't have money to buy a house, so they're looking to buy an apartment. You know, even though they get a good job, they don't have it. So they're focused a lot different. When I came out um, and I got, you know, got out of service and got out of college, I was immediately, well, the first thing that I did when I moved back to Columbus was buy a house. I didn't have any other debt, so I could do it. We, we, um, we, we, par we partner with a company called Momentum. Momentum has helped us design a product strictly for millennials that have student loan debt. So every time they swipe their debit card, <clears throat> they can round up and that money, that round up money accumulates and pays off their student loan debt. Doesn't sound like that's that significant. But then say, hey, Dad, Mom, would you use one of my cards and round up every time you round up, it goes to my credit card debt, I mean, it goes to my student loan debt. Hey, how about Grandpa and Grandma? <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, all they're doing is they're putting their change, rounding up, so this thing cost me $11.59, and I rounded up to 12 bucks. So that's, uh, you know, 51 cents. I have transactions like that all day, all week, and mom and dad does it. Surprising the, the dent that that can make on the interest on that student loan, which is really what kills the student loan. So the student loan never goes away because the interest payments are so high. And if you notice, student loans are, they cost a lot more than a regular loan. Just like buying a house. You know, if you pay only your payment, your monthly payments, it's gonna take you 30 years to pay off that mortgage, right? I mean, if you never move, never refinance or anything like that. But if you start paying off that principal a little quicker, I mean, you can you can reduce the size of that mortgage down to from 30 years down to 12 years just by paying a little bit extra on that principal. And that's what really what this product does. So it's something that appeals to uh, millennials. Uh, we're seeing usage of it. It's kind of still new. We don't make a lot of money on it, but it's a way to let millennials know that we're thinking about them. Um, one of the other things that we did, um, we had a, a partnership with this company called Next Job. Um, and maybe not the need for that, the economy's booming now, but during the time, just a few years ago when we were in the financial crisis, what was happening was students were graduating from college, they were going back home and living with mom and dad. Um, couldn't find the kind of job they were looking for. So we partnered with Next Job and we got these kids scholarships to Next Job, which taught them how to use the skills that they had acquired in college or whatever to find that next job. That went, that went well with a lot of those uh, millennials and as well as their parents as well. So we still have that partnership with Next Job. Um, you know, with 4.3% unemployment. It's not quite as popular as it was when unemployment was 7%, but still there. I can use a bucket of those momentum cards. I'll just hand them out downtown. Right, and I'll be walking. I'll be yeah, I can see gets a card. Everybody will get a card. Yeah. Round up, round up. There you go. Uh, but uh, so one of the last questions we always like to ask as we start to wrap up here uh, focuses on the theme of our show, and without telling you too much about it, it's just live uncomfortably, and um, you know it means a lot to us more than just you know pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. Uh, so what do you think of when you hear the phrase? How does it apply to your life? 
Living outside of my comfort zone. Live uncomfortably. So that's the phrase. That's an interesting thought. Uh, I think I've always been uncomfortable (laughs) in my life. Uh, And uh, what I I think where I've been good at that is I've always tried to take calculated risk. But I was never afraid of the unknown. So, I mean, when I was in the Air Force, for instance, I had a very successful career in the Air Force. Things were working, and everybody I knew um, from all my bosses were trying to get me to stay in, make a career. Hey, this is easy. All you got to do is stay for X amount of time. You can retire early, blah, blah. Then you can go start a different career. Um, didn't appeal to me. <laughs> uh, so you, I didn't have a, a job for certain. At, you know, after I was graduating from college, and going, going, I knew I was going to college, and I knew I was going to do all these other things. And so I knew I was going to have to live off my money that I'd saved in the Air Force and I have that uncertainty. Uh, I did that then. I think um, today, uh, I think the future is even more uncertain just because of the um, the fast pace at which change happens. So things happen so quickly that you can invest in something today and can be obsolete tomorrow. Your business model is easily disrupted that I'm working on a project right now. <clears throat> And this is typical. Uh, the project we're working on at the Columbus Airport Authority is um, is a rental, new rental car facility. So we're working on a new rental car facility. In a few years, we're going to do a whole new terminal renovation and do a whole new midfield development. That project requires you to think way out into the future. Well, what's happened to rental cars? Rental car usage is down. So rental car companies are struggling. Why? Uber, new technology people are, you know, used to be you'd go take a trip, you'd get a rental car. Now it's like, hmm, I maybe I don't need that rental car. I only need it for part part of the day. I'll just do Uber. I'll use that. And so uh, it's changing that. It's changing the parking. The biggest revenue source at the Columbus Airport is not air, air, It's not landing fees. It's parking. It's the biggest component of the revenue. We're seeing it change. We're seeing a shift. So uncomfortable is like, wow. How do we, as board members, <clears throat> uh, prepare the new executives and the leadership team? How do we challenge them to think, you know, years into the future to change um, how their revenue sources are and what are they going to do to make up and come up with alternate revenue sources? How do they embrace the technology? How do they embrace the change? And so, uh, that's that's what I think about. I see it in in um, I see it same thing in hospital systems. I'm on the board at Nationwide Children's Hospital. I see some of the same thing there. Uh, innovation in how we treat people and how we treat patients is changing very, very quickly and very rapidly. And, uh, um, you know, behavioral health is a huge issue uh, with a lot of our youth. And uh, it's not a big revenue source to, to do those kind of things. So what happens if you decide to take that on? What happens to your balance sheet? What happens to your revenue stream? What happens when insurance companies won't reimburse you? So. Uh, you need bold leadership in order to deal with change, but you need to also wake up and embrace it. So, I get uncomfortable every time I have to pay to park as well, so <laughs> I definitely can resonate <laughs> with that situation. Yeah. I think that's a good place to wrap up, though. I had a great time, and I think our audience get a lot out of everything we talked about today. And uh, thanks again. Any final words before we close it out? Or? No, it's been a pleasure meeting both of you. Uh, I hope I didn't ramble too much, which I have a tendency to do when we start talking about things like this. But I really enjoyed the questions and definitely uh, some thought-provoking things. And uh, just wish you both the best of luck with uh, what you're trying to accomplish.
Thanks a lot. And uh, Conquerors, thanks a lot for listening. That was Jordan Miller, President and CEO of the Central Ohio Region of Fifth Third Bank. And uh, we will talk to you guys next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know you have to choose it and yeah, it's I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.